0: Hey, everybody. This is Rob Liefeld. It's time for another excursion into the land of Rob'servations. Rob'servations is when we, uh, examine, pick apart, do the deep dives, deep cuts of comic books, pop culture, how they intersect and all that they have meant to all of us, uh, especially to me because they have been my obsession and my passion since I was seven years old and first became obsessed with every comic book on the spinner rack. If I could have had them all, if I could have had them just deliver the spinner rack to my house every month, what a joyful occasion that would have been. But it was every week, sometimes every day, most definitely every weekend, pouring over comic books with a passion that became a career and a career that has, uh, just been such an amazing blessing to me, has been such an amazing, uh, Ride, given me the opportunity to share with you, not just my artwork, but my creations as Deadpool, Cable, Domino, X-Force, Youngblood, Brigade. Uh, huge runs on Captain America, Avengers, all the way through up till the day. Uh, just what, what a blast. I love comic books. I prefer a good comic book to pretty much anything else in life. And what we do here at Rob Observations is we deep dive through the past because my favorite saying here is the past informs the future. Today, we are going to have at it. This is a good one. These are the untold tales of the untold tales of the comics industry. Every business has projects, uh, films, music, TV that, that doesn't come together, that's announced, that doesn't finalize. Comics is no different, and there have been some classics, some amazing bodies of work some amazing projects that were almost completed, some amazing projects that didn't quite get off the ground but saw some movement. We're going to examine all of those today. We've got three key uh, stories that I'm going to share with you, including one that I am involved in towards the end. We'll get to that at the end, but let me tell you something. I'm going to start with the summer of 1982. It was the fourth uh, in in the Marvel DC Comics Uh, team-ups that had been renewed. They had done the classic Spider-Man, Superman that I've covered with you so well and in depth here on Raw Observations. The Superman, Spider-Man that kicked it all off in 1976 was an instant classic, beloved by so many, but they didn't follow it up for five years. There was no further Marvel and DC adventures. And it came about that that, uh, Jeanette Kahn, who was the head of DC Comics and DC Publishing, and Jim Shooter uh, agreed to meet for uh, a lunch that Jeanette had reached out to Jim Shooter to set up. Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics at the time, and they spoke about the idea that they would renew this, that they would give the fans what they wanted, that there was all these possibilities, this entire um, world of, of creation and creative uh, you know, choices that the fans would just flip out over, and they weren't wrong. They were not wrong that Superman Spider-Man again lived in everyone's minds and hearts as this special occasion uh hardcore comic book fans I think just the, their memories that they, they adored that amazing collaboration that we've covered here where Neil Adams pitched in to help out and 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 the book is just this giant treasury size love letter to both Superman and Spider-Man and Doctor Octopus and Lex Luthor and Lois Lane just what a great time and they had discussed that they should renew this, that there was all sorts of different combinations that they could do that would just, you know, drive fans nuts. And, and as I said, the, the, they were right in their instincts. The, there was some serious business driving this as well, as Jim Shooter goes back to talk to his boss, a, a gentleman named Jim Galton, who was the publisher and the uh, corporate head of Marvel Comics at the time. And he, at one point, shares with Jim Shooter that they have done the calculations that these will be at minimum $300,000 profit uh, per project to either side which which whichever side which produces them now dc comics had been charged with the production uh you know responsibilities on the original from 1976 and they kind of called the creative shots of course marvel is going to you know and did uh, exert editorial control they exerted you know uh consultant in input but dc was charged with the task back in the day superman was the biggest character he was the more known worldwide quantity spider-man was right there on his heels but but superman was the classic dc went first it was decided that marvel would go first and i've also covered previously that 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 superman spider-man 2 while it's a fun book very admirable effort does not have the pizzazz that the first one did it just just doesn't have the dazzle. There's there's the lack of the splash images, the, the the big double page splashes, the big moments that that we cherish, the stuff that we take with us as fans, and and it, it's sometimes the difference between us, you know, tolerating a project, um, merely liking a project, or absolutely loving a project. And in this case, the follow up, which was so capably and well done by John Buscema and uh, Joe Sinnott, who did the the line art from a story by Jim Shooter uh just just didn't have the same punch it was it was uh it was hard to follow up the classic and and get that same juice going even though they had doctor doom and they had parasite but that initial project had its own you know bunch of snags that we're going to discuss that i think uh laid the groundwork and 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 planted all the seeds for what would eventually grind it all to a halt cuz this does not go uh very far and and this is our first kind of untold tale of untold tales we're gonna unlock today because it's summer of 1982 August 10th in fact August 10th so we are right there on the anniversary the the big daddy the one that every fan wanted X-Men Teen Titans arrived on the comic book shelves and interestingly enough while it was written by Chris Claremont and certainly approved and consulted by Marv Wolfman The two giants that had made X-Men and Titans the dynamos of their respective companies—X-Men, the number one-selling book for Marvel Comics, and Teen Titans, the number one-selling book for DC Comics—was George Perez and John John Byrne as the artistic mastheads, the 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 driving forces that drove again fans into a tizzy. Now, neither of them produced X-Men Titans. That was a book that that was drawn. Capably, amazingly, by Walter Simonson, inked by Terry Austin. So Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin had created this amazing body of work, this run uh that 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 dazzled fan that fans that is legendary, that is talked about in my house on a weekly basis. Um but so so Chris and Terry showed up. Walt Simonson was a brilliant choice given that 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 John couldn't do the art chores. And this was a Marvel production because Marvel did Superman, Spider-Man, the follow-up. Then DC produced Batman, Hulk, which came out next. And then X-Men Titans followed in the third place of this renewed uh, publication schedule between Marvel and DC combining. But it was fourth overall because you had the Superman, Spider-Man from 1976. But Walt Simonson knocks it out of the park. August 10th, huge day. I remember... Going to the comic store before I went to my aunt and uncle's to hang out by the pool as summer was coming to a close, but I did not go out to the pool for at least an hour because my mom had driven me to the comic store. I had breathlessly run in. The only comic book I wanted that day was X-Men Titans. The advertisement that had been run in the comic books was the wraparound cover by Walt Simonson, and I believe it is probably my single favorite image of Walt Simonson. He who would go on to transform the Thor comic book one year later. One year later he would arrive, and this book obviously had a tremendous amount of influence on him getting uh complete control of Thor because big shoes to follow. No George Perez, no John Byrne, Walt Simonson steps in, forty eight pages, maybe more. All the Titans, all the X-Men, Dark Side, Dark Phoenix, Killer Story, Deathstroke. I mean Wolverine versus Deathstroke for a few panels. I mean Deathstroke taking out the X Men. I mean Dark Side battling the X-Men, Dark Phoenix, battling the Titans. It, it was really inspired. Chris stepped up. He delivered. Walt Simonson penciled his ass off. This is such a beautiful book. But who knew that as I poured over it and anticipated the follow-up, because in the fan press they had said that the follow-up would be produced by DC Comics, and that would be Marv Wolfman and George Perez doing Teen Titans X-Men immediately. That was the follow-up uh, that, that, that was coming down the line. But there would be one after this, uh, after this X-Men Titans, before we got to Titans X-Men, the dream project for one Mr. George Perez was Justice League Avengers. Justice League Avengers. Two books that George came to prominence on, that George had done beautiful bodies of work on, that George was synonymous with at this point. Again, 1982, let me tell you. George Perez is this amazing uh, fan, favorite, beloved, uh, beloved by fans. I, I I would venture to say that one of the most celebrated personalities in comics, not just an artist, personalities, names, retailers loved him, fans loved him. Everyone loved George Perez. Had had a huge impact at Marvel, had a huge impact at DC, was one of the early guys to cross the street after this tremendous... Six-year run over at Marvel Comics doing just gem after gem, diamond after diamond on their big hit books, Avengers, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Marvel 2 and one He goes over, he does Justice League, he does Titans, and he, becomes, he, 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 he is single-handedly responsible for DC Comics becoming as competitive as they would become with Marvel, who was dominating, but the Teen Titans just forced itself into the conversation on George's artistic ability alone. No slight to George. To Marv Wolfman, but as I have said here many times, these are comic books. The pictures matter first, foremost, and often. And and if the pictures are what's turning you on, and you're the guy that's drawing everybody's favorite pictures, then you have huge influence, huge passion, huge following. And George had all of those things. And so George was engaged and told everybody about his passion for this Justice League Avengers crossover that was set to begin following X-Men Titans. But as I said, X-Men Titans, as beautiful and gorgeous as it is, this wraparound cover. Little did I know on August 10th of 1982 that this is the last of the Marvel DC crossovers. The Justice League Avengers would not occur. It would not come to pass. And everything after that just crashed and burned. Now, eventually, in 1984, I am seated next to George Perez, as he tells me in detail um, with great anger about the fallout of Justice League Avengers. Because as you, as we said, this, this project did not come to pass. X-Men Titans hits in August. Justice League Avengers is going to come out the next year. And the fan press is covering it. George does this amazing cover to comics interview. It's the only really published piece of art from this project. George... Comics Interview is an interview magazine. There was a bunch of these great fan magazines at the time. Amazing Heroes, Comics Journal, Comics Interview. Well, George did this great cover with all the Avengers on one side and all the Justice League Avengers. Avengers, All the Justice League characters on one side, all the Avengers on the other. And they're facing each other with their fists bare and their growling teeth and their, you know, angry visages. And it's like they're going to throw down. And it's such a beautiful piece by George. Everything that he's... Known for all the intricate details, the great faces, the crackling energy, just the passion—it's such. He picks such great shots, but this was all we would get. That is the only legit piece of art that we would get. It is a printed cover, approved by Marvel and DC. It's not some you know Xerox of an interior art art page that would appear in other uh, projects down the line, like like the art of George Perez or or in the Comics Interview magazine itself because when George is giving these interviews, promoting that this is coming and we're all very excited, he's got pages he's showing. Twenty-one pages were penciled by George Perez at the peak of his career, at the apex, right before Crisis on Infinite Earth. George was doing the best work of his career. Crisis would be like the you know pinnacle of everything that 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 he did well and, and was became the victory lap instead of Justice League Avengers. But Justice League Avengers was intended to be that pinnacle. And those 21 pages, as a diehard George Perez fan, who went to his very first creation comic con in 1981-82 and bought a page of art from George, kept going through my allowance money, making it, trying to make it work. I think I paid $100 for a splash page of Darkseid in the Justice League issue that he did with the Darkseid uh when Darkseid was battling the uh, the Justice League, the New Gods, and the Justice Society, and I got to talk to him and this very old man who was his art dealer. George had brought all his art out to the West Coast. Everyone was poring over the pages. That the Teen Titan pages were kind of expensive. The Avengers pages were kind of expensive, but this one Justice this 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 Justice League splash page with Darkseid with his cape and the Injustice Society on the stairs behind him. That was my page. It fit my price range. It was a great image. George knocked the price down a little because he saw this teenage boy that was desperate to own a piece of his art. This is the first interaction I had with George Perez. He was so sweet. He was so um, engaging. And I would go on to see him at multiple Southern California uh, comic store appearances, convention appearances, and wind up sitting next to him again in 1984 as he recounts with dread how this project fell apart and didn't come together. So I am just an avid George Perez guy. He is my one A, my one B on any given month, along with John Byrne. I've mentioned Frank Miller time and again. He's such a a profound, uh, you know, influence on everything that I do professionally, on everything that I ever loved and am passionate about as a fan. He is on my my Mount Rushmore. My Mount Rushmore has Frank Miller on it. I, I can't put George up there at this time in my mind, it doesn't fit. But let me tell you this, George and John Byrne, when you drew the team books in the mid 80s, it was all about the team books. Pretty girls, handsome men. Um, You know, you had your, 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 your tempestuous, you know, males like Wolverine, Um, your hotheads, you had your uh, variety of villains. The two guys that did it the best, Byrne and Perez, had the adoration of the fans. They had the adoration of, they were the Lucas and Spielberg of their day. Again, I've always said um, Frank Miller was more of the Martin Scorsese, the Quentin Tarantino. And, and, and But doing those team books, drawing those pretty girls, drawing those cool villains, drawing those multiple character story arcs and, and six to seven team books, which George and John did so well, had put them at the top of everybody's favorite list. George was adored. Justice League Avengers, those 21 pages. Pictures of those pages were leaking out in the fanzines. Again, no internet. You had to wait. You bought those magazines. Those magazines were not heavily ordered either. If you got one at your comic store, maybe they had four or five. I mean, that was precious, and you showed your friends, and you better believe anything George did, I was all over. And these Justice League Avengers pages are phenomenal. I mean, it's got Kang the Conqueror, my very favorite Avengers villain, battling the avengers they're rushing outside to battle and beast is leading the charge hawkeye's right behind him she-hulk is running alongside them this lineup is is amazing there's there's this 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 great gathering of the heroes around the table with with cap and thor and iron man and i mean and george is just he's picking the shots he's drawing these amazing uh beautiful figures and faces and interactions and there's batman battling captain america because they get split up into teams of 3 and and, and and you see each character take each other out, and of course they would fight. That's what we want them to do. And this this plays into something that Dick Giordano would say later down the line, uh, who was the uh, a- editor-executive in charge of the DC end of things when Justice League Avengers was being put together. And uh, again, because DC Comics was running point on this, but they needed approval from Marvel. And Dick Giordano maintained that one of the things, above all else, that anybody wanted to see was these characters get together to fight and he was one hundred percent on the money. And as I've already said here, he was not wrong. What went wrong was the ire of Jim Shooter. I I'm gonna tell you, Jim Shooter did more right than wrong, in my opinion. He is the best editor in chief Marvel ever had. But at this point, prior to Secret Wars, this is where he's becoming a little more persnickety, a little more stubborn, and and, and things are uh are 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 he, he he's making some enemies, he's making some calls that, that aren't in the fans' best interest, and this kind of, uh, maybe, in my opinion, his biggest blunder, his biggest blind spot, because he went up against a fan favorite, I think, that he just did not expect to be as adored as George Perez, and he has lost the court of public opinion ever since. He's certainly not going to win it back today. This was a bad call by him, but we're going to explore, because I said, back in the Spider-Man, Superman, the sequel... That, that Jim Shooter himself wrote, that John B. and Joe Sinnott produced, during that time, he has, in great detail, uh, spoken of, written of, Jim Shooter has, the uh, the battles that he had with DC, putting that together. As I said, both Jim Galton and Jeanette Kahn, look, they got together to do these for money, okay? There's always got to be a business reason driving it. Business reasons can be great in driving some of our favorite Uh properties, I mean, if somebody doesn't want to make a buck, we never get Star Wars, we never get Aliens, we never get Terminator, we certainly don't get the sequel to Terminator. Sometimes the numbers that those projects generate are the reason you get the follow-up, the sequel, the endgame, the Infinity War, the Black Panther, whatever you're being served up. And it also fuels maybe the, the, the bigger budget behind it. Certainly the excitement over Marvel and DC doing these crossovers is what brought George Perez to the table in the first place. The guy can write his own ticket in 1981, 1982, 1983. So the fact that he's going to pour his heart out and, 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 and produce these amazing pages is, is because he is responding to the call from the fans and, and the commerce from the retailers that this is going to be a huge project. Dare I say, Justice League Avengers, the way George was producing it, would have been the top book that year Maybe that for, for for the entire age. Maybe it would have been the crowning achievement of the Bronze Era. We will never know because it fell apart in spectacular fashion. But the seeds are planted in Superman, Spider-Man, the sequel that's being worked on in 1980, 1981. G- Jim Shooter has in detail, again, uh, recounted that he handed in a plot and that the editor, Joe Orlando, who was the consultant for DC, uh, overseeing DC's interest in this projects, Refused to approve the plot for the greater part of four months. Jim details how he kept calling and uh, and, and and ringing them up. And and he he kept uh, bugging them like, are we getting approvals? I need John B. Summit to start on this project. Now, the lucky part, the best thing about this is John B. Summit is so prolific. He can do a comic book, even a 48, 60-page comic book as this was. In a, a matter of weeks, he is so talented, and at this point, such a vet, such a veteran. He can just knock this thing out with 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 absolute you know, proficiency and the most highest professional execution possible. But he wants to give him as much time as possible, and he doesn't understand why they're not getting back to him approving this plot. Finally, he starts getting threatening with Joe Orlando and, and, and really uh, uh, using every aspect of his ability at Marvel to flex. And one day, one day, Joe Orlando returns the call and says, approved. Or his assistant calls Jim Shooter and says, approved. And Jim does not understand why the calls were dodged. The decision was delayed. There were zero changes in what he had written. So what was the delay? What was the hangup? No one knew. He finally got his approval. He went over to Busema's house. They started down the road. Somewhere along the line, uh, DC Comics... Because of their purchase by Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers asks to delay the book. They are notified that a delay in releasing the book is going to be necessary now again, Marvel and d c are both into this because they have figured financially that these books alone are worth three hundred thousand dollars in profit again, they're oversized they're two bucks two fifty. It's a lot of a lot of scratch coming both companies' ways. Jeanette Kahn, when she met with Jim to say, why aren't we doing these? Why didn't we ever follow this up? led with these would be great business for both of us. Again, good business, good commerce. There's a reason you have so many Star Wars movies. It's good commerce. Those movies generally show up. They generally do extremely well. That's why there's so many more in the pipeline coming your way. That's why you get the Mandalorian on Disney Plus. It's because these are what you what you call surefire bets. So they begin this process. Jim is delayed by four months. Marvel is working from behind, kind of the, the now the, the deadline wheel. But they're given this blessing that this book, because of corporate uh, synergy reasons with Time Warner and uh, DC Comics, they have to push it off. But DC contacts Marvel and says, "You're late," and Jim Shooter pushes back and says, "We can't be late. You didn't give us the approvals in the in the proper time, and we're you know running to play catch up." And at this time, Jim was going to his very first trip overseas to London for a convention, very excited, accompanying other Marvel pros, being uh, given first-class accommodations. Paul Levitz, Jeanette Kahn, and Joe Orlando contact Jim Shooter's boss, Jim Galton, who proceeds to chew Jim Shooter out. He details in in, in great length how he had never been spoken to by the publisher of Marvel, like that before and that he said they have threatened to pull out and you know what this means to us. DC is saying they will cancel this. You've got to get over there as fast as you can to make this right. Jim then hustles over in the presence of Paul Levitz, Joe Orlando, and Jeanette Kahn and says, what's going on here? You guys wouldn't approve my plot for four months. Then we get get going on this. John is in the process of finishing the book. They are telling Jim and he says, you're telling me I have to have this entire thing scripted by the following Monday. I think this is a Thursday night that they're having this meeting. I have to have this by by Monday morning or you're terminating the contract and canceling the deal. And they say, that's, that's our deal. That's what we're doing. And Paul Levitt says, sorry, Jim, that's what the contract says. And he said, no, you can't publish this for six more months. We've been told that there's a delay from your side. Paul Levitt says, that doesn't matter. We need the entire book in hand per the contract that we negotiated. Now, I know Paul Levitz. I've been around this business a long time. Going into my 35th year, Paul can be a persnickety prick. And this story rings true to me on every level. Paul can be very weaselly. He has a weasel gear that he can throw himself into. And reading this, I was immediately seeing Paul Levitz. He said to Jim Shooter, he held up the contract and said, Jim, you're giving us all sorts of excuses. You know, today it's this, tomorrow it's this, but, it, but we want what's in the contract. We want what's in the contract. The contract says this date on Monday is when you have to have the final script in. And if you don't, we'll pull. And Jim says, but I am supposed to go to London, England for this convention. I'm on a number of panels. And Paul Evans says, sorry, Jim, hate to break this to you. You need this on Monday. If you can do London and the script. And Jim said he knew I couldn't do both. And they ground him. Jeanette Kahn seemed to be open to it. Joe Orlando was completely silent the entire time, hoping not to be called on by Jim or embarrassed by Jim, according to Jim. That's his recount. And Paul Levitz just kept holding up and said, come on, Jim, it'll be another excuse next week. Just do what's in the contract, on the contract. Let's go by what the contract says. Shooter says he went back. He told Jim Galton, we should call their bluff. They're not going to want to lose this money. They're not going to want to lose this investment. And Jim Galton said, I can't do it, Jim. We need to adhere by the contract. And Shooter said, I'll do what you tell me to do. He canceled his trip to London. And he stayed home that weekend. And he handed in the entire plot by Monday morning, exactly as the deadline outlined. The book still wasn't released for six months uh, after this. I believe the animosity that was between these two right there. Levitz, and Jim Sheeter is are just the seeds of everything to follow. Paul uh, grows in power over the next several years uh, at DC Comics following this. And uh, J- Jim throws in what he believes uh, Paul was taking digs at him on the way out of DC that night, saying, Oh, it's a shame you're going to miss all these wonderful places in London, this restaurant, this historic site, uh, this museum. Felt like he was pouring salt in his wound, knowing he had had him up against a rock in a hard place. Jim was very resentful. He did his deadline. He did the professional thing. Paul kept holding up the contract, maintaining you need to meet this criteria. He did it. He did it. The book was still delayed because of the corporate issues. But again, the corporate issues came about after the fact, and it did not change the terms of the original contract, which had a date in it. And so Jim, without being given the reprieve by DC, did this, was aggrieved was inconvenienced and was quite frankly super pissed off now batman and hulk was already underway jose Garcia lopez lenween deliver this amazing follow to superman spider-man the sequel and it's great it's great fun batman hulk is terrific hulk certainly has the tv show on the air i think that's the primary reason why they did it because to maximize on that Uh, appeal Hulk had had grown to be Marvel's number two worldwide licensed uh, figure character property so obviously Batman with all his cartoons and his TV show 1982 Batman is a giant he's a big deal so then we get X-Men Titans and quite frankly I don't know how they pulled this off I think it was just uh, you know again part of the back and forth of you make uh, this much money we make this much money let's keep this going but that 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 Um, bump in the road that was that sequel to Superman Spider-Man and this incident that Jim uh, has played out about the four month delay that they were delayed by four months. And then suddenly that you can't go to London because we need this script, which is only really required by the deadline for no other reason right now, because the book can't possibly go to press and be finished in any other capacity. And Jim did say, I can give you that script. The book's still not going to be done. And we know that doesn't harm the schedule because it's 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 not it can't come out because of this corporate delay. Anyway, we find ourselves at Justice League Avengers. And when the plot is sent in to Jim Shooter by Jerry Conway, Jerry, who has spent almost equal time at both companies, done hit runs on Spider-Man and the Avengers, on Firestorm, on the Justice League. Jerry Jerry has done Avengers and Justice League, just like George Perez. They are both. Beloved components, creators, contributors on both titles. George and Jerry are the team, and I couldn't have been more excited as a fan. But Jim claims he got the plot. He hated it, thought it was problems everywhere. He uh, had a meeting with Dick Giordano. Dick Giordano said, so what are your problems? And Jim said, my problem is this, this story is terrible. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. He cites all sorts of different incidents in the plot, uh, given the time travel uh, aspect. It's got Kang the Conqueror from the Marvel End as the villain, and DC's Lord of Time. So you got two different Time Lords, and Jim, everything from the lineup, the specific lineup of the Avengers characters, just pisses Jim off. He he holds nothing back in recounting how angry this plot made him. He said it was nonsensical, the team-ups didn't matter, the endgame didn't matter. He, he felt like the entire plot could be undone given the illogical aspects of the story. Dick Giordano says, look, I understand what you're saying, but this is comic books and we always change things as we go along. Jim said, no ch- no, can do. I, right now, I'm stopping this. And Dick says, please, this is going to inconvenience Jerry. This is going to upset the office. He He begs with Jim to let this go forward. Jim is insistent that this not happen, that he wants his notes addressed. He has given specific notes, and by the end of the conversation with Dick Giordano, he goes, I'm going to tell you how you solve this. Give me a new plot. Give me a brand new plot. Start from scratch. This does not satisfy. Dick Giordano says they'll work on it. They reach out to Roy Thomas. They include Len Wein. They're just pulling in all sorts of elements to appease Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter cannot be appeased. He believes... After speaking with Roy Thomas and Lenween, both of whom say, we believe we can rework these elements and get them more to your liking. Jim is completely and totally unsatisfied and maintains that there is no way that there is any modifications to the existing storyline that he will not go through with it. Here's the deal. George had already started drawing the story. I have been that guy who has been so energetic about something. You just start on it. You just go. You, you've already been given a green light. You're creating covers, pinups, sequential pages. I think George's Jones for this book shines through on every one of these 21 pages that George Perez went ahead and drew based on Jerry's original story. Word leaks to Jim Shooter that George Perez had tra- has drawn 21 pages and he explodes. He flips out. He demands that those pages be axed, killed. And and that he will not use a single panel. Dick Giordano again meets with Jim Shooter and says, "Look, we believe we can make some address. We can address these. I work with Len Wein, Roy Thomas. Everybody's on board. We are we are rejiggering these pages. We are re uh, you know we, we have a way to use everything that George has done, and and so that none of it goes to waste. Given that George has given so much of his time and his ability and his talent, and Jim is a hard no, not a chance." there will not be a single panel from these pages used. Again, these pages are now part of, and they live in infamy in the comics industry. They've been printed uh, multiple times. They have been shown in multiple uh, publications. There was a follow-up to this where 20 years later, they actually go through and do a version of this. It is nowhere near the pages that I have seen and that I have held. I will mention that for a 10-year period, I owned this artwork. I bought these pages for $1,000 a page, all 21 pages in 1993, and they were in my position possession until 2003. And I'll tell you in a little while why I let them go. Uh, And it it, it very much was just heartbreaking in that they were going to try and attempt this so much later. But I'll get that. I'll get I'll I'll circle around to that in just a second. The bottom line is I've held these pages. I poured over them. I looked at them. The pages when I bought them were already matted. They had they were in blue, thick blue matted frames and with shrink wrap around them. I never violated the shrink wrap. I never um took them out. I didn't have them removed from the plastic, the, the, the blue uh matted frames. That's how George delivered them to me. That's how they had lived. I even put them up on dis on display at a uh, Chicago Comic-Con and San Diego Comic Con so that all fans could have a up close and personal viewing of them. I've seen these pages. I've lived with these pages. They're bre- they're beautiful. Here's the deal. What it comes down to is that Jim Shooter had just dug his heels into not cooperating on any level. And when his original no was not honored and his second no was not honored, and then finding out that George had illustrated these things, he just dug his heels in until this book died. His version of it plays exactly what I just told you. He just tries to justify every one of his actions as this and that and the other thing. When you see these pages and you see this brilliant work, it's like having an album of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whatever your favorite act is. Uh, you know, uh, Bruno Mars, Michael Jackson, Prince, Taylor Swift, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen. Master tapes of eight to ten hit songs. And for whatever reason, because it doesn't, uh, Adhere with the expectations that you had, you just kill these tapes. You just absolutely uh, refuse to release them. These are, it would be again on par with those great artists, an entire Star Wars film, filmed by George Lucas, that you decided, no, it doesn't fit with our preordained uh, expectation for this project, so we're just not going to release it. it. It baffles my mind to this day that these pages were not seen, were not finished. Some of them were inked. Dick Giordano inked partial panels on these pages. This was more than just 21 ink, twenty-one pencil pages. They had gone into the inking stages. With Dick Giordano, who is George's favorite inker at DC Comics, who was also the executive in charge at DC Comics, and he was he kept trying to convince Jim, just allow this. And, and I just, I cannot impress on you enough. There should have been a way to make sure that these pages went out. Jim Shooter the executive went up against the darling of the comics industry in George Perez. And in recounting how furious George was, George said in an interview with a British uh comic book magazine, he, he he did not mince his words when he spoke and said, I don't want this taken wrongly. Um, Sheeter knows full well that no one else will sell the book the way I did. I am a fan favorite. And everyone wants me to do this book, and Marvel is actively trying to sabotage it. I will not let Jim Shooter get away with what he has done. I am going to use every available means to let people know what Jim Shooter has done. If people don't believe what I say, at least I have gotten it out of my system. He believes, because shortly after canning this project, and I just read that word for word out of the compendium, Companion that comes with the eventual crossover they did 20 years later. Kurt Busick and George Perez got together to do this major 448-page uh issues of JLA Avengers. George's uh that, that that's his quote from the magazine shortly after Shooter killed it. Shortly after Shooter kills it, Hard No breaks DC's heart. DC then pulls out and says, There will be no more DC Marvel crossovers. That That was the straw that broke the camel's back. Jim said, "You know, everybody knew what it cost us. He blames Dick Giordano um for for not adhering to what Jim said out the gate that he did not like the way this plot unfolded. He did not think it was um well constructed. Jim has shared on his blog that Tom Brevort, the current Marvel editor and the editor of the eventual Avengers j l a project that saw uh saw print twenty years later. Tom Brevoort said, you know, I wasn't there, but everyone I talked to involved in the time reflected everything Jim said. There was problems with the story. It was a real train wreck. I say, who cares? You have the biggest star on the planet, George Perez, pouring his heart into these pages. These pages looked amazing. They look be- They are beautiful. They are among the best things he's ever done. I have no doubt once they were inked and colored and finalized, this would have been, as I said, maybe the the." the the gold gem of the bronze era. You had passion from George Perez. He loved this. I love the Lord of Time. I love Kang the Conqueror. I can speak as a fan of both the Justice League and the Avengers that this is exactly what I wanted to see. Every page pushes my button. Every page is something that I wanted to see. But Jim Shooter felt slighted, felt his authority was undermined and he pulled the big boy pants and he certainly had big boy pants. He's 6'7". Jim Shooter's is a 6'7", very intimidating man. And at that time, feeling the height of his authority, he killed the project. He killed the project, agreeing to, after killing it, that he would approve the subsequent plot that was submitted. It was at that time, just to get all the details in there, that Dick Giordano pulled out and said, because you've done this, we will no longer be cooperating with you on any level. There will be no follow-ups. There will be no further DC-Marvel team-ups. And until 1995, where Marvel and DC produced a mini-series where they battled each other and then they started doing this amalgam where they they took versions of each other's characters and mashed them up. This was a 15-year stalemate. Really, it was a 15, 14-year stalemate. It's a long time. And uh, all over this giant kerfuffle because uh, 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 an authority figure didn't like that the story that he believed was flawed was being pursued. And he said many times that Dick Giordano said, "'Come on, Jim, why, what are you doing this for?' You got the biggest artist at our company, DC Comics, and an adored artist from from your fan base, George Perez. He serviced both fan bases. They adore him. They just want to see these characters get together, have an adventure, fight, mix it up. And he was on the money on this. Jim Shooter's ego, his arrogance. He says, I did my job. At the end of his writing, his recollection, he said, I did my job. I demanded a great story. I demanded a hot, I demanded quality. And if that damned the project, then that damned the project. Because at the end of the day, I was doing my job. You didn't do your job in this case. You did not do your job. These pages are gorgeous. They should have seen print. The reason I let them go is the day I was sitting at my computer, I was hitting my refresh button in 2001. I think it was one of the major shows. They announced that Marvel and DC were coming together, that George Perez and Kurt Busiek were going to do Justice League Avengers. I had owned 21 of the most exclusive pages ever in the history of comics up until that point. I had shared them generously, as I said, put them on display in free viewings at the major conventions. There was no reason for me to hoard them. I wanted to share them with everybody, make sure that you saw what I saw, what was in my collection. They were special. I felt like I did have that secret third act from Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, some unseen footage that was... uh, you know this 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 treasured collector's piece that 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 was a part of cinematic history or comic book history in this case or or you know unreleased masters by the Rolling Stones or the Eagles or or the Beatles that that's what I felt I had and when I saw that there was going to be four forty eight 48-pagers and that there was almost going to be I'm sure with covers two hundred pages now of something that had not been done for at that point twenty years I immediately felt that the value of those pages just dropped that now I didn't have anything special. Um, these didn't hold the same appeal to me because they wouldn't be revered in the way that they had been because there's going to be this new 200 pages, 200 pages of this actual newfangled crossover, uh, that was going to exist, that was going to supplant them. So I immediately moved to sell them. Uh, I eventually sold every single page and, and, and released them. It it was just, uh, my love affair with those pages like died almost instantly because they just part of their appeal to me was that I had those pages that I saw in the fanzines, and I got to know George Perez and I got to buy them his price. He asked a thousand dollars a page. I met it. I owned them. They were brilliant. I love those pages while I had them. But when I heard that there was going to be an official crossover and I will tell you, I am not a fan of the eventual crossover. It came out a year later. Um, It is not in my opinion, the 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 same caliber of work that the 1982 83 pages are um it's overstuffed i think that the problem starts with the writer kurt and george had done some admirable work together on the avengers in 1997 98 but uh this was where's waldo uh just hundreds of characters jammed into panels of pages. They 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 opened the floodgates. It was almost an entire DC Marvel Universe crossover. The focus to me was hard to maintain. George was just packing it in. That there's space, there's movement, there's some some of the most iconic Avengers and Justice League shots in the original pages. And here it's this cramped, very um uh in my opinion, the final project what was put out in two thousand two, two thousand three. That is a overstuffed, very cramped, um just uh really almost uncomfortable to to, uh, to to look at all the pages because it's 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 just too much. That's just my opinion. That is my opinion. The book sold extremely well. It is a giant hit. I have the oversized slip case hardcover on my shelf next to me. I just read from the compendium. So I obviously bought it, I followed it, I just didn't have the favor towards it that I had of the originals. The original is a masterpiece That in my opinion, a giant ego got in the way, just was like, you know, this is my no, and nothing outside of my no is going to matter. And no matter how many people pleaded with him, and the list is long, Roy Thomas, Len Wein, Jerry Conway, Dick Giordano, George Perez, he killed someone's dream project. And I felt so bummed when the announcement came out in the fan press. And so Justice League Avengers died. But that isn't the real loss here. I'm going to tell you, I told you I sat with George, and George told me at great length in 1984, you don't understand, Rob, it wasn't just Justice League Avengers that was lost here. That was our next that, that was going to follow X-Men Titans. The, 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 this, this passion of mine with Jerry Conway, this great um Justice League Avengers story. Again, you just cannot understand what a big giant comic book box office superstar George Perez was. Jim completely overplayed his hand here. He he did not have the higher ground. He had the higher authority to kill it, and he did, but George was adored and and, and fans to this day mourn this. I've spent 45 minutes talking to you about it. And it didn't happen the way it was supposed to. But George then says, Rob, we, Marv and I were doing the follow-up to X-Men Titans. It was going to be Titans X-Men. And he said we had the Hellfire Club, Sebastian Shaw, White Queen, Leland, Pierce, all of them, with the Brotherhood of Evil from the Titans, um, and uh, Monsieur Mala and all those characters, they were going to be the bad guys. He said, going up against the X-Men and the Titan Squad, and he said, "Oh, Rob, it was, it was, I, I, I really respected what Walt did. That, that was, he, he did a great effort. It's such an amazing effort, but fans wanted the people that they adored." Um, who made those characters so successful? In this case, Cyborg, Starfire, Changeling, Raven, even Night—you know, the renewed Nightwing, the the, the Kid Flash, everything, Deathstroke—all of the great love that people had for the Titans was because of what was coming out of George Perez's pencil. Titans never recovers. When George leaves, they try a multitude of artists. It never recovers its favor. Uh, it loses track fairly quickly. It was one of the first books that you could tell was a byproduct of a creator's fan base the creator's fan base was what made titans and that was george perez and his beautiful art and storytelling and imaginative character designs characters when he left titans never recovered so the fact that he was going to follow up marvel's stellar effort walt simon's outstanding x-men titans with his own george is a competitive guy he would have stepped up to the plate it would have been the same time he was doing these justice league avengers pages. It would have been maybe the biggest comic of all space and time. Again, supplanting what I already said could have been the biggest comic of the Bronze Era was the Brotherhood of Evil and the Hellfire Club teaming up to bot battle uh, the X-Men and Teen Titans under George Perez's pen. Oh, my gosh. George said to me, They don't know what they lost, Rob. They don't know what they lost. Marv, we were going to write a sequel to X-Men Titans that was one for the ages. They don't know what they lost. And I felt it as a Titans X Men fan. Oh, I felt it. It was a kick to the nuts. So JLA Avengers went down in flames and took the sequel to X Men Titans with it. George was committed. George was, uh, on point doing the best work of his career. He was at the peak of his penciling powers in this period. What had started in 1975 with the Avengers prior to that, Sons of Tiger, uh, White Tiger, you know, some, some, some. Luke Cage fill-ins. George Perez had been waiting to get on something like Avengers. What started in 1975, all the way to Avengers 200, when George did the double-sized anniversary issue of 200, leaving with issue 202, going to D.C., starting the Titans, doing his beloved tenure on Justice League. That would have been the, just the best um, you know, accumulation of all of George's talent. He had never and had never been drawing better. The art that everybody wants. In George's career is from that 1980 to 1983 period. It's where he was just feeling it. Every artist has a peak. This was his peak. At his peak, he was denied not just one, but two career Hall of Fame projects that would have been beloved by fans. So that is true tragedy. The untold tales of untold tales. Now, our next untold tale is a much quicker one, but it involves quite simply the most talented illustrator ever to do it in comic books, and you know that I have said this to you multiple times, Neil Adams, he is on my Mount Rushmore. He is on my Mount Rushmore next to Frank Miller, next to Jack Kirby. Neil has influenced maybe three, four generations of comic book artists. One of his biggest influences was on John Byrne. The John Byrne style was a very deliberate, watered-down style based on Neil Adams. It was this brilliant, almost manga anime interpretation of everything that Neil had done. And it took with the fans, but it never was, it didn't leave Neil in the dust. You weren't like, oh yeah, man, Neil's being out and down. No, it was this careful shift, but Neil was at the base. He was at the very base of what John was doing, especially throughout his tenure. There is so much Neil Adams in his Savage Land storyline, in his Magnum Moses storyline, in his Magneto storyline. John Byrne favors neil he is one of his favorite artists and it pours through everything he was doing the reason i am telling you this neil adams is a competitive dude both his sons uh have gone out of their way especially in recent conversations with me on facebook when i have asked questions about neil and his process they have gone out of their way to tell you how absolutely competitive their dad is to this day he will take the, the the artists on the stands that he believes the fans are favoring and he will apply it to his own work now I'm not Neil Adams. I do the same thing. I'm always paying attention to the new guys. Not everybody does this. Not everybody looks at the stands on a day to day basis and, 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 and looks to see what everyone is doing in order to keep a commercial kind of foothold and keep a relevance. That both Neil's sons have, uh, with, with great passion informed me that Neil has always taken whatever's you know, going on, whether it was the image guys, m- myself, Jim Lee, Tom McFarland, Mark Silvestri, our, our class, later on, Brian Hitch, Alex Ross, even Olivier Coipel, Jimmy Chung, Steve McNiven. This is what they have shared. That Neil likes to keep abreast of what everyone's doing, whether it's a, a rendering technique, maybe it's a new storytelling technique. Bottom line is, Neil Adams is one of the most competitive mofos you will ever find in the business. He's still doing it, as old as he is, late 70s, early 80s. It's one of the two. I don't have it in front of me. But Neil is spry. He is super talented. He does these auctions like every week on Instagram and on Facebook. He's doing covers. He's doing a brand new Fantastic Four comic book for Marvel, this guy is crushing it. His art is magnificent. He is the best to ever illustrate comic books. Superman Muhammad Ali is the single best illustrated comic book of all space and time. You want to talk about a guy at the peak of his powers, that's it. But he never slipped to like below a B in his work. I I, I don't believe it. His illustrations are still top notch. You would I, I've had him... Draw sketches for me in the last five, six years. I've commissioned Neil. I'm a fan. His influence is substantial. Frank Miller counts him as an influence. John Byrne, um, all the image guys. He is profoundly uh, influential. Why am I telling you this? In 1981, he answers the call to draw a graphic novel of the X-Men from Jim Shooter, who says, I want to put you together with Chris Claremont. I want you to do this graphic novel. Neil says, I'm gonna do it, but it has to be under different conditions. It it, it can't be work for hire. It's got to be a deeper contract than that. Jim Shooter says, I'm gonna make that happen for you, Neil. I'm gonna make that happen for you. Because Neil was a big creators' rights guy and he was super, super invested in making sure that talent got more than just a page rate. Neil wanted royalties, he wanted a contract, he probably wanted a guarantee. He just says, I need something more than a work for hire. You've got to make this happen. Well Neil had the, the, the plot, and he started drawing it. He gets five to six pages in, and to his credit, Jim Shooter calls him immediately and says, Neil, I need to let you know, I can't back up that promise I made to you. They're not going to go along with what I want upstairs, and I I wanted to let you know as, as soon as I possibly could that we are not going to be able to do this deal with you. I want to be up front. I, you, you were up front with me. I'm going I'm to be up front with you. It had only been 10 or 14 days. Neil had gotten so excited he produced these pages. These pages are out there. You can see them. They're going to be in my show notes along with this episode of Robservations. Observations. And they are gorgeous. They are Neil looking at John Byrne saying, that's cute. I influenced you, right? Okay. Well, now let me show you how I draw Wolverine and Colossus and Angel and Storm and Professor X and Magneto. And you guys, you guys, you're going to see in these pencils, they're lush they're bre- they're beautiful, they're brilliant. They are Neil rising to the occasion going, hey John Byrne, let me show you uh let me show you how it's done. Had these pages gone through, had these pages been seen, they would have been the apex of Neil Adams' career. These pages, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna share them in my notes. And you're gonna see how beautiful they're drawn. You're gonna see the John Byrne influence. So it's a guy influenced by Neil. Producing this amazing work. And then Neil going, I can take some of your influence. The the Wolverine that John, that, that, that John Byrne drew, that everyone loves, is very present in Neil's rendition. Except it's it's Neilized. And I'm telling you, they're beautiful. These are beautiful, beautiful pages. But Neil is immediately told by Jim, we can't do the contract you want. And I, I mean, look, X-Men was a home run. It was a grand slam. It wasn't like Neil was creating something from the ground up. So I can see where the people upstairs said... Nah, X-Men sells on its own. By that time, Neil Adams, uh, by that time, the X-Men had had multiple fill-in artists. George Perez had done an entire annual that just sold gangbusters. Brent Anderson had done some fill-in work. John Romita Jr. had done an annual. Um, You know, Paul Smith was in the middle of doing his transformational run. Dave Cockrum had come back and the book maintained huge sales, actually more than, than John, based on the inertia and the momentum John provided. I can see the guys upstairs saying, You know, Neil Adams, he's definitely, he's a uh, a monumental talent, phenomenal illustrator, huge name in comics, but we're not going to bend the rules for him. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was a brand new, you know, uh, comic book they would have. But on this, on X-Men, they said no. So Neil put his pencil down after six pages, was very polite, said, Jim, I get it. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And they parted ways. That is Another untold tale, maybe you did not know, they then go and give the project to Brent Anderson, who also is very Neil Adams-influenced, a ridiculously talented penciler in his own right. God Loves, Man Kills is the graphic novel that Neil was set to illustrate. Brent handles the chores instead. It is a classic. It is acclaimed. It is one of the most uh, critically heralded bodies of work, a, a, the very first X-Men graphic novel. Chris Claremont wrote his ass off. Brent Anderson steps up pencils and inks this thing and just uh, delivers just a beautiful body of work. I would have loved to have seen Neil do it. Neil at this point is the best Neil has ever been. He Again, a guy at the apex of his ability. He was starting Continuity Studios, comic books, Ms. Mystic, some of these other really interesting concepts. You would stare at Neil's work. It was so beautifully drawn, so beautifully rendered, so tightly uh inked and in the and just all the little details and the nuances and I, I just maintain Neil has been and continues to be the best illustrator we have ever seen. You want to give painter to Alex Ross, that's fine. Alex uses tremendous photorealism, lighting, uh, photo ref um to to, to do what he does. I, I think Neil is in a different league as far as a storyteller and as far as his impact on comics, but certainly painter illustrator, Alex Ross would take the cake. He, he he owns that, but Neil has a forty-ish year, fifty year career in comics that is just a phenomenal legacy and body of work. And these X-Men pencils are lush and beautiful. And I believe it is what his son said. He is he looked at John Byrne and said, I can take you. I can rise to this. I can I can make these characters look even more appealing than you can, because they got the juice. Now I'm gonna put my Neil Adams sweet, beautiful illustrative line on it. And I'm telling you, these pages are are gorgeous. So, another untold tale of untold tales of comic books. And we're going to wrap it up with an excursion into an an untold tale from my end of things. Uh, Fast forwarding into the 2000s. Where myself and Robert Kirkman were contracted to do a comic book called Kill Raven. Kill Raven was a 1970s era comic book. It was actually called War of the Worlds. Killraven was the hero that sprang out of it. Uh, the, the Neil Adams didn't issue of Killraven. Howard Chakin did an issue of Killraven. Kill Herb Trimp uh had some great talent on it. Killraven's one of those great, like, he he gets a C list in the catalog because he's not uh he's not A or B list box office, but he was picked for this project um out of our passion because I had uh written a commandee proposal to DC Comics, Commandy Jack Kirby's Last Boy on Earth in an apocalyptic setting. I had written a proposal that opened with Commandy and his comrades uh, realizing the location of a satellite that was floating high above Earth, and they make their way to the teleportation device uh, on the, on the ground, fight their way into it, activate it, and are taken up to the satellite where you find that the jla are gone but the green lantern power ring and green arrows uh bow and 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 batman's utility belt all of these objects are still up there aquaman's trident and so uh commandy and his team are they assemble these items the, the the power ring which is then activated which brings a green lantern from another sector in the commandy universe uh the the arrow is picked that the bow and arrow was picked up by one of commandy's uh comrades who then kind of assumes the mantle of a green arrow type and they go on this adventure to find out what destroyed the satellite and and perhaps who is behind this massive destruction of earth that commandy has been walking through dc summarily dismissed it i had not been on good terms with dc but i did not stop that from me punt giving this over to them i believe i spoke about this in an interview which led At the time, Editor-in-Chief Joe Casada at San Diego in 2005, 2006, to inform me that I should do this with Marvel, except call it Kill Raven. And then he said, why don't I team you with Robert Kirkman? You guys seem to like each other. You're friends. Would you guys do this together? We were all on the couches in the Hyatt in the afternoon of a Friday at San Diego Comic-Con. We were all in town. We were all doing the show. We were on a break. Jeff Loeb is sitting there, Joe Casada, myself and Robert Kirkman Joe says, "I can get this done. I can make this happen for you." He even jokes first. Do you want to write this to Loeb? And Loeb's like, "No, have have Kirkman and Life. I'll do it together." Well, <clears throat> what happens is that the the, the project gets fast tracked because I'm doing Onslaught Reborn with Jeff Loeb in 2006, and and Jeff is uh, got a ton of uh, TV responsibilities. He's doing the Heroes TV show over at NBC. The plots, the stories the script starts slowing down and Onslaught Reborn is going through like these massive gaps on the schedule. So I I did issue one, I did issue two and then huge gap between issue two and three. And I said, hey, you guys, come on, what am I going to do with my time here? I, I, you know, do you have something else for me to draw while I wait for the Onslaught Reborn plots? Well, my editor, John Barber, who actually is my editor today over on Snake Eyes that I'm doing a G.I. Joe project over in IEW, he says, Rob, we've been able to get Kill Raven through the system. Kirkman's working up the first issue's story. We're going to get you going on on pencils, and you can do this in the interim while you're waiting for Jeff, given that we are owed three more issues in this five-issue miniseries. So Robert and I talk. I know what he's going to put down on paper. I get started. I do the 10 pages. I eventually do the 22 pages of issue one. Marvel likes it. They uh, commission Robert to write the remaining four issues of a five-issue Kill Raven Miniseries. I draw the whole thing. The only thing is, shortly after issue two, Robert leaves Marvel. He uh, leaves Marvel, becomes a partner in Image Comics, something he is long overdue, given that, and we will discuss this at some point, Robert Comics is the reason Image Comics, Robert Comics, that's good. Robert Kirkman is the reason Image Comics is thriving today. They were on the ropes. Early Early 2000s Image Comics was rough to watch. This company that I helped build was doing, like, kind of cheap porn, you know, sex comic books. Um, The talent was not uh, uh, first-rate. They were just signing every Tom, Dick, and Harry to do these kind of sexy sci-fi books. It was not the company that I had uh, 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 helped, you know, build from the ground up. Todd was no longer doing uh, Spawn. Mark was no longer drawing. Uh, Jim Valentino, I think, was acting as publisher. Eric Larson was still doing Dragon. Jim Lee had left. Powers by Bendis was starting to happen, and Powers is an A-list, top-notch, amazing comic book. It is my favorite Brian Bendis work. Kirkman walks in, does Invincible, knocks it out of the park, follows it up with Walking Dead. The rest is history. Skybound Comics is the biggest label in Image Comics. Robert was well within his means to make the moves that he made, become the partner, become the transformational force, the guy that, that really keeps Image afloat in some very lean years, pumped some very huge dollars uh, given his trade paperbacks and his comics. The amount of money that Robert has kicked into Image to keep that company going is a discussion for another time and place, but he is the most significant contributor to Image Comics in the last 10 years. He leaves Marvel to become the partner, and shortly afterwards, he does a talking head video with a green screen where he says... You know, when you were a kid, did you walk out of Raiders of the Lost Ark and say to yourself, all I want to do is the further adventures of Indiana Jones? Or all I want to do is more Star Wars? Or did you want to make your own characters? Now, the irony at the time was I'm of Robert's camp. Make your own stuff. Like, but there are classics that are very attractive to the populace, and nowadays, especially I think because of Marvel films, more than anything, everybody wants to do a Marvel film, especially because it has made the careers of so many actors and has made the careers of guys like the Russo brothers who had been doing sitcoms prior to then having Marvel comic success, where, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if the Russos have directed a movie outside of Marvel as yet, but I believe all their Marvel movies are hits, and so again, why leave the Marvel? compound when it is churning out hit after hit after hit for you so this idea that robert put up that you know don't you want to create the next big thing was this kind of creative challenge he presented but it rubbed marvel the wrong way i was told this by my editors because i had like three different editors over the course of kill raven but the kill raven miniseries has a futuristic wolverine uh, that the 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 uh premise is still the same the martians have conquered us they have conquered Earth. Killraven in our first episode is very much a Russell Crowe type gladiator young in the gladiator rings where the Martians pit people against each other to battle for their pleasure to the death. He battles his way out of the arena off of the uh, giant heli carrier that is halfway into the ground in New York City that is where they house all these um, uh, gladiator games and they keep so many humans prisoner. Killraven makes his way out into the uh, what's left of Manhattan. He eventually stumbles across the half remains of the Vision, who is only from the torso up. Very much a nod to C-3PO in *Empire Strikes Back*. After Chewie discovers him, as they're dismantling C-3PO for parts, a a Vision, a half assembled Vision, and Killraven continue to wander until they hit Avengers Mansion. They discover Avenger's mansion. There is someone with Iron Man's armor. There is someone with Hawkeye's bow who are holding down the mansion from potential Martian invaders. They have discovered these weapons in the Avengers' arsenal. This is, again, a nod to what I was doing with Commandy. It is so much fun. Wolverine is this mindless, basically, war dog that the Martians have programmed to uh, lead packs of uh, hunters that hunt down humans, especially escaped humans. So Wolverine is dispatched to Battle Killraven and his new friends. We continue to build on this. We build a new core. This is kind of like Killraven and the Future Avengers, but our I'll just go ahead and say it, our Martian Overlord. We are we reveal at the end of issue 2 that the reason he was able to subjugate everyone. Again, this is drawn in 2007. I draw I draw this in 2006 to 2007 in between uh, the jobs of Onslaught Reborn, which was many, many gaps due to Loeb's overwhelming workload. Uh, I was able to produce Kilbraven paid in full. This, this, I colored the first two issues, so uh, fully illustrated these. Uh, the warlord in 2006, 2007 in our story, the way he subjugates mankind is with the Infinity Gauntlet. You see that he found it. We have a backstory of how this Martian warlord came upon it. Two of the jewels are wrecked, so he only has three of the five jewels in the Infinity Gauntlet, but it is more than enough to, for him to exert his uh, his his influence. And, uh, oh, we have a female Thor. The female Thor is in episode, in issue two that we introduce. Um, there's a little girl that touches the hammer in the Avengers Mansion, or a little kind of slave girl, and she's transformed into the female Thor. This book is a blast. It is also some of my best work I've ever done. It is easily... I believe everyone at Marvel felt it was Robert's best work while he was there. He had been building to this from Ultimate X-Men to his Marvel team up to other different projects that he was doing there. His Captain Americas, he just found it. He found his voice. We worked great together. This is a fantastic series. I was told that it was not to be released. I, I was given the bad news that they were going to sit it because there was hard feelings that they had towards Robert Kirkman and they had set it aside. Then about a year and a half later, based on so much of my pleading, they said that they had discovered that that they had decided that they would release it. It was going to get announced at New York in 2008. It did not. Again, they pulled back. There were hard feelings that Robert had left under the conditions he did. Given that he then immediately went and banged the independent uh, drum, and the end result is uh, five 22-page issues, so over 110. Uh, pages that I uh, produced with Robert of this epic story that we bring to a conclusion in the fifth issue uh, has continued to be unreleased. CB Cebulski contacted me in the summer of 2019 and said that he was going to do his very best to get this book out. And that he was going to go to do the Marvel management and try to get us uh, our eventual release. Now, again, the first issue is colored. The second issue is colored. I told CB that I would want to Retouch the color, given the coloring is over, you know, it's, it's almost 15 years old. I wanted to update it. But again, you've got a, a, a completely illustrated five issues. And sometimes Marvel editorial, I see some of these guys speak out and they're very uninformed. I don't think they have all the pages. I don't know if they've lost all the files. Again, it's been 2006, 2007, and now two twenty. I mean 2020. This book is is ready to go. Sometimes you read solicitations right now in comic books for comics that no one has started drawing yet, that no one has even been picked to draw. Sometimes Marvel has creative teams that say, TBD, to be determined. Your creative team on that cat in that catalog has not been picked yet. Killraven is ready to go. I don't know why it has not been given the green light. CB was ultimately not able to get the upper management to green light this going forward. Um, you know. Umpteen thousands of dollars have been spent on this. Robert was paid. I was paid. Uh, I colored the first two issues. These bills have been paid. They are ready to be released and to be activated. But every day, I believe that that is likely not going to happen. And this is not a gripe. It's just a part of the, you know, untold tales of untold tales of comics. Sometimes you win. Sometimes you lose. Killraven has not been moved to the winning side of the ledger yet. I pray that someday, very soon, it will be. Um, I think it can be one flick of the switch, one agreement. Robert has expressed to me his interest. If everything were be- to be on the up and up and respected, that he would complete it. But that is a far cry from happening. We are very good friends. He is one of my best friends in the comics industry. I have nothing but tremendous respect for this guy. The work we did together on Kill Raven with the future Avengers. Uh, all of the, the little girl touching the hammer, turning into Thor, the Martian overlord with the compromised infinity gauntlet, all of the, uh, of earth enslaved. It is such a fun story. It would do so ridiculously well, but it remains five complete issues remain in a drawer, a digital drawer because the, the files were sent to Marvel, but they are not. And when I mean files, the pencils for issues three, four, and five are complete. the, Pretty much the whole first issue two issues are ready. Anyone who tells you otherwise is not informed. They do not have the receipts. I have the receipts. Again, Marvel does not make a practice to pay for work that is not finished. You have to complete the work. Generally, everybody out there in, in, in basic Marvel land knows sometimes 10 pages at a time, sometimes 5 pages at a time. You go 10, 10, you know, until you're complete. Covers, I did covers to every issue one of my favorite projects i hope it comes to light i've reconciled myself that it's not it's a fun story i can tell you on raw observations it fits neatly on the shelf alongside the unpublished justice league avengers and the unpublished neil adams god loves man kills and there are so many more untold tales of untold tales of comics that we will cover in the months to come because these are just a hoot to talk about the possibilities what if lord and miller had been allowed to finish their 95 percent completed solo film, right? You know what? what so, some of these movies, some of these projects that we see, you know, Scott Derrickson, who I love, his 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 body of work is fantastic. He shot an entire Snowpiercer pilot, a two-hour pilot that we have not seen. He cast Jennifer Connelly. So this type, this stuff happens right now, today, in our world as we live and breathe right now. There are projects, films, uh, television that have been shelved that you're not going to see. You may never see. The Snyder Cut is a huge triumph of something like this. That, that's, that's when a Kill Raven project works out. People go, we're going to flip that switch. We're going to make that happen. I pray to God that Kill Raven ha- happens. I do not hold out any hope. Last summer, I thought it was as close as it was going to be. CB had genuine interest in making it happen. From a creative standpoint, he thought Kirkman Leifeld in 2020 would have been a giant, giant project. Um, maybe it's gonna happen down the line, maybe it won't. Justice League Avengers is just a whopper of an untold tale. The fact that it cost us the follow-up to X-Men Titans is brutal. What a kick in the nads. Okay? The Neil Adams pages, you're gonna see them on here. They're brilliant, they're beautiful. I, I would I wish that he would have been unleashed on that. He had the eye of the tiger. He wanted to show that he could play with the big boys and that these guys who were influenced by him were not as good as him. Neil is a competitive dude. He loves to compete. He lives for it. You could see it in these pencils from nearly 30 years ago. And Killraven, there it is. You heard it. I laid it out for you. It's an untold tale of the untold tales of comics. Thank you for joining me. I am on Twitter at... Robert Liefeld with the blue check to differentiate me from the weirdo imitators that I see sometimes. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, at Rob Liefeld, much simpler. I got to that name first before the squatters did, okay? So anyway, at Robert Lifeld on Twitter, at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I'm all over social media. I love hearing your feedback. Thank you for listening to Rob's observations. Please subscribe to this. Pick up my new Snake Eyes end game, Dead Game Uh, uh, mini-series that's out right now. I have a passion for comics. I don't just talk about comics as I do here on the podcast. I make comic books. I will always make comic books. This is my passion, creating from the top Of the left-hand side of the page, all the way down to the bottom right corner, I fill it with storytelling and ideas and characters, and I will be doing that until I pass from this earth. Thank you for joining me on Rob Observations. I hope you have the very best day. We will see each other soon. We will talk again real soon. Stay safe. Stay out of trouble. Talk again soon.